podcast one production. Hey, I'm Matt Dwyer, and welcome to Sleep, where Professor Harriet Hiscock and Associate Professor Emma Shaberis from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute help you identify sleeping problems in your children from infancy through to secondary school and give you easy to understand steps to improve their sleep cycles and overall health. So what do you generally do when a patient comes to you tired, frustrated, wanting to fix their child's sleep problems? Is this a case-by-case issue where you treat each one individually or do you have more of a universal solution? Well, Matt, I think the first thing is I often say to parents, what what is your goal with your baby's sleep and what is it that you want to try and change? Because um, everyone has different different ideas around that. But there are a couple of um, common approaches that we use. So one is called the, um, the checking method or the controlled comforting method. Um, it's previously been called controlled crying or the Ferber method. And what's really important to know is this is not where you shut the door on your baby and leave them for the night. So this is a method whereby um, you use a good bedtime routine and that should be common to all methods. So, you know, it might be bath, feed time, having a look at a book um, in the lounge room with the television off. Mm -hmm. Then um, when your baby starts to look tired, taking them into the bedroom, you might wrap them if they're not yet rolling. Otherwise, if they're rolling, you might just put them into a sleeping bag, giving them a cuddle and then trying to put them down into the cot, drowsy but still awake. That's the key thing. Now, if you're lucky, your baby will just go off to sleep. Um, They don't go to sleep straight away. There's a bit of a myth that you know, they should just go to sleep as soon as you put them in the cot. We don't do that when we go to bed. So it takes at least 10 minutes for a baby to fall asleep. And during that time, they might grizzle. They often move their head back and forth or thrash around a bit. And parents come to me worried about that. But the baby is just self-soothing doing that, a bit like we might rock in a rocking chair to get to sleep. So if your baby's doing that, you can leave the bedroom and that's, you know, happy days and that's <laughs> that's wonderful. But if your baby starts crying then what do you do? And so control comforting or the checking method is a method whereby the parent will go back and forth into their bedroom to comfort their baby. And the comforting might be stroking their baby's forehead or patting them on their tummy or patting them on their bottom. And you need to do that patting at a really gentle rate, not a really fast rate because that will just, you know, um, make your baby more, you know. What does um, the padding actually do? It's just a rhythmic way of calming the baby and often calming yourself. And what we recommend is doing one of those techniques for three or four minutes to see if your baby will calm down. So if you're stroking or padding and you want to do it until they're quiet but not asleep because you want to give your baby a chance for them to fall asleep by themselves so that when they wake up from their light sleep, their, you know, their sleep cycle, they can go, okay, I know where I am, I'm in the cot, I'm in my room, I can go back to sleep again. So what we suggest with babies um, under six months of age, you know, between three and six months, if you're using this checking method that you would stroke or pat them in the cot, when they're quiet, you'd leave the bedroom and you'd only leave for a maximum of two minutes. If you leave for any longer, little babies wind themselves up so much and get so distressed that it's really hard for them to calm down again. So maximum is two minutes. You'd go back in, you'd do the same thing, 
trying to keep them in the cot if you can. If you're having a night where you're thinking, oh, I can't cope with this or it's not working, it's fine to pick up your baby, give them a cuddle, give them a feed and try again or say I'll try again um, the next night. So up to six months, um, six months of age, we, we say keep that time interval when you're outside the bedroom to maximum two minutes. After six months, you can start lengthening that time that you spend out of the bedroom. It might become three minutes or four minutes or five minutes and there's no absolute time. It's what you feel you can manage um, as a parent and also listening to your baby. So if you can hear your baby's crying for the couple of minutes but starting to quieten down, it's probably better not to go back in because you might just rev them up again and make them upset and actually they're going off to sleep anyway. And Harriet, are there any harms associated with that that technique, so yeah. letting babies cry? Yeah. So this is not letting them cry for long periods. Mm-hmm. So when um, the research we've done at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, we've done a number of studies and we've followed babies um, who have done these sorts of um, strategies at 12 months of age, two years of age and six years of age. And we've asked parents about their baby's sleep and about the child's behaviour. And we've actually taken cortisol, so saliva swabs from um, children as they've got older. And we have found no, um, no harms from this um, approach. So at two years of age and six years of age, these children um, actually at two years of age have fewer sleep problems, um, but their behaviour is the same as babies who didn't go through the approach. Their salivary cortisol profiles are the same as well. And this um, follows on with some work done by Michael Gratisar mm-hmm. and colleagues in South Australia, where he did a study looking at cortisol in babies before starting sleep strategies and immediately after and when they turned, um, 12 months later actually. And again, for the babies, he compared a group who got these strategies with a group who didn't get the strategies and there was no difference in their cortisol or in their attachment to their their parent, their mother um, at those time points as well. And what are some of the benefits of this kind of intervention approach, apart from improving the child's sleep? Yeah. But are there other benefits that you see? Well, certainly the parents come back often to me and say, gosh, I wish I'd tried this sooner. So I think one of the biggest benefits is parents get to sleep. And with control comforting or the checking method, it's usually a three to five night program that you have to do it for. So you do have to be in, in for that period of time. Partners need to be on board together because it's awful at 2am if you're there saying, I can't you know, do this and you're fighting with your partner about it. So everyone has to be on board. But I think the biggest benefits are the child sleeps better. They are happier. They feed better usually during the day once they're sleeping better. Um, their interactions are you know, more lively and the parents actually rate their relationship with their child as better. And we certainly know from our studies that parent mental health improves with this approach as well. How effective is it, uh, Harriet? So how are there there families that you see where this approach just doesn't work? Yeah, look, absolutely. So the checking technique probably works in about 70% of babies and and toddlers, so it doesn't work in everyone. Um, It's really hard to tell exactly ahead of time who it's going to work for and who it won't work for. But certainly I say to parents, when you put your baby to sleep and they are protesting, is it an angry protest or are they sounding fearful or sad? And if it's an angry protest, I often suggest going with a checking method first. Um, but if it's if it's a sad or I'm really stressed out, you're leaving me, then there's a second technique that we use and has got good evidence for, and that's called the camping out technique. And this is where the parent places a camp bed or a chair right next to their baby's cot. And the first few nights, they will pat or stroke their baby off to sleep. 
After a few nights when the baby's falling asleep, you know, within 10 or 15 minutes of doing that, they might just sit there and they might just pat the mattress while their baby falls asleep. After a few nights of that, they'll sit there and not touch the mattress or the baby. And after a few nights, they'll start to move their camp bed or chair a foot away from the cot and gradually out of the bedroom. So this is a much slower technique. It takes two or three weeks to to work. And some parents say to me, that's fine. I don't want my baby to cry. And they really um, much prefer this technique to the the checking method. Other families say, there's no way I can do that over two or three weeks. (laughs) Let's do something that's going to work over three to five nights. So that's, um, that's a choice. And that's, you know, it's great for parents to have that choice of what will work in their family. But I do think that the babies get anxious when their parent leaves the bedroom. It's better to do the camping out technique as a more gradual approach. And do you ever get stuck at a step with that? Like, mm. do you ever, does, yeah. it, does it kind of go nicely and sequentially yep. through that? Or do you ever get to a point where you're kind of stuck in the hallway? Or Yeah, look, a lot of parents do get stuck in the hallway. And sometimes that's more about their anxiety than their baby's anxiety. And so what I say, okay, if your chair's in the hallway, why don't you try coming, coming and going from the chair? every couple of minutes, go into the kitchen and do something for a minute or two and then come back to the chair. And the aim is that, you know, when you come back, you hope your baby or your toddler's fallen asleep without you there. And what about co-sleeping? Is that something that that people yeah. that people use as a strategy. Yeah, look, co-sleeping is um, something that's really common and probably um, a lot of parents won't um, often admit it to health professionals. And co-sleeping is when you share the actual uh, bed space and surface with your baby. So it's not when you've got a side cot or a cot right next to your mattress. It's They're in bed with you. We recommend against co-sleeping in the first year of life because of SIDS. So there is evidence that if you sleep on the same sleep surface with your baby, um, that does increase the risk of SIDS, particularly if it's a doona or if the mattress is not properly fitted into the bed and they can get stuck between the bed and the, the, the mattress and the frame of the bed, or if you drink alcohol or if you're overweight and obese or if you take any sedating medications. Having said that, there are cultures who have been co-sleeping with their babies for centuries and a lot of parents I see, the only way they say they can get their baby to sleep is co-sleeping. But I think we need to think about ways to do this a bit differently and there's been some studies in New Zealand where they're actually using Maori um, woven baskets with firm flat bases um, and they're putting their babies in there and that's actually being shown to be quite effective. So I will always counsel parents not to be co-sleeping on the same surface but think of a cot alongside the bed or something like one of these Maori um, little poi baskets which have got a firm sleep surface and don't have the bumpers or anything, um, but the child that can be placed between the the parents in the bed um, for a safer sleep space. That's great, Harriet. I I had a a bassinet that that I just was trying to come up with what I was going to get and I got this bassinet after a lot of thought and I just could not get my child into it. Yep. Um, and and I was looking up all kinds of different things and we ended up hiring one of those at co-sleeper attachments. Yes. Foot next to the bed. And how did that go? It was a lifesaver for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fantastic. The only tricky thing for us is that our little one rolled yeah. early and so it meant that it wasn't, we didn't feel, we couldn't leave her in there um, for too long. Right. It was really only good for the first couple of months because yep. she was rolling out and we were worried that and she would And then rolled into us. your bed. Yeah, exactly. And, so yeah. it was a short-lived yep. experience yep. but it 
it actually, it worked for us and it was quite, it was quite an enjoyable experience. And I think being able to hire those sorts of things and not spending, you know, hundreds of dollars on equipment is also a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think after spending all the money on the initial furniture, it had to be a hired, (laughs) (laughs) a hired one. Yep. You mentioned that dummies can be a lifesaver, but are there any dangers around that? Yeah, the big issue with dummies, well, there's a couple of issues. There's um, having to get up and replace it overnight, which can be exhausting, and I'll talk about management of that. Um, But also if dummies are on too long a chain, um, there's theoretically a risk that might wrap around the baby's neck and and cause harm. So there's a couple of options if dummies are a problem and, and your baby's waking up multiple times overnight. One is to just get rid of the dummy. A lot of parents say, oh, I can't do that. From the age of seven months, they can put their own dummy in their mouth. They've got the fine motor skills to do that, babies. So I'll often say attach um, to your baby's pyjamas a cord or a string with a dummy on, but that has to be less than 10 centimetres in length. So they can't possibly wrap that around themselves. And then what you do is you, um, when your baby wakes and they need the dummy, don't put it in yourself. Slide the baby's hand down the chain onto the dummy and into their mouth. And usually after three nights, your baby will know where the dummy is and how to put it back in again. So that's sort of the the interim plan. And then when you're feeling rested and strong enough, then you can start to get rid of the dummy. And some parents will do that by taking it away from the daytime sleep first and then do it um, for night times after that. And instead of the baby settling with the dummy, they'll use one of these other strategies of camping out or the checking method. And often after a few nights, the babies are okay. Again, parents will say, gosh, I wish I'd done that earlier. One thing I wanted to ask, have you found that with all these different methods that they apply to parents that have multiple children in different age groups? Uh, absolutely. So in our studies, we've had parents, um, you know, first-time parents, second, the third, fourth-time parents who've used these strategies, and they can certainly apply to different age groups as well. Both the camping out and the checking method can really take you through to, what would you say, Emma, the end of oh. primary school potentially? Yes, definitely. I think I've even seen... Um, Certainly done some checking method um, activities yes. <laughs> um, with, with kids even in year seven. So it just depends. And I think especially if there's high anxiety yep. that you might end up using those strategies for a much longer time in the child's development. Yep. Are there children where checking and camping out doesn't work? In your experience? Uh, yeah, look, if neither of those work, the checking or the camping out, then it's really tricky. There's a, there is a third um, method called parental presence, and that is where you, you know, you have your bedtime routine, you put your baby or toddler into their, um, their cot, and then you stay in the bedroom. So you actually stay there for seven nights straight. The lights are out. Um, you might just be sitting there. Some parents I know look look at stuff on their iPhone, but the screen turned away from their baby. <laughs> or they just are in the room, just putting away clothes and things. And that can actually work quite well and be quite reassuring. Um, and I've had parents do that and do the odd shh, shh you know, um, while they're in the room. And that's worked really nicely. So that's the third option that helps. Very occasionally over the age of one, certainly not under one, and perhaps even older, we might combine some of these strategies with um, an antihistamine, but that's got to be done under the advice of a specialist. 
And what about uh, the room environment? So there things that you suggest to families around kind of preparing yeah. the room and, you know, should you put them to sleep in a light room or should yep. it be dark? Or how do you manage all That's of that? That's a great, great question. <laughs> um, it's got to be dark and cool. And so um, I find particularly in those first few months, babies might sleep quite well in the living room you know, when they first come into the world. But after, you know, a few months, they might start sleeping and, and not sleeping in that living room because it's light and there's people coming in and out and the radio or the television's on. So really, where they sleep should be the same for daytime and nighttime. The bedroom should be cool and dark. And there are some babies who seem super sensitive to light and parents will actually put up garbage bags and almost black out the room and then their baby sleeps really well. So there's just some babies who are like that and need that really dark room. I think the other thing is trying to avoid too much in the way of video monitors, monitors, music, those sorts of things. You don't actually need them. You might use music for the first few months when you're trying to get through that crying phase, but then starting to turn down the volume and phase that out. Because again, it's another sleep association like patting or feeding might be. And if the baby can only fall asleep to music, then they want that music when they wake up, you know, two or three times a night um, and they'll be expecting that. So does that mean if you were using music, you'd have to have it on the whole night for some kids? Yeah, so some parents put the CD on repeat. um, And what I'll say is once you're getting your child to learn to go to sleep, then start to turn the volume down on that and and, um, get that out of the room. I'm very keen on turning monitors off as well. (laughs) So as we said um, earlier on, babies are very restless sleepers and I often have parents saying, oh my gosh, my baby's roused and they rush into the baby's room. And then the baby wakes up and goes, oh, there's mum, there's dad, it's, you know, party time and starts to anticipate that will happen. So, you know, if you are confident that if your baby's crying, you'll hear them from your bedroom, turn the monitors off, turn the video monitors off. I I had a funny story once from a a maternal and child health nurse who said um, there was a parent who um, lived in a cul-de-sac and the house two doors down had the baby monitor on and everyone could hear every argument and everything the baby did overnight (laughs) through the houses. So be careful. (laughs) And what about things like teething and like other kind of conditions like eczema and, and things, do they affect sleep? Yeah, kind of look, age? teething causes nothing but teeth. Mm-hmm. So a colleague of mm-hmm. ours um, at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute did a whole study on teething and looked at whether or not it was associated with things like sleep problems and temperatures and diarrhoea and actually it was associated with none of that. Mm. So I think teething gets blamed for a lot of things. It's probably not the end of the world, but we don't want parents getting into a cycle of using things like Panadol a lot for teething. So things like eczema definitely are associated with sleep issues. Children, if they are over, have got eczema and they're overheated or got very dry skin, will tend to be really um, irritated by that and itch a lot overnight. Um, so that's something that needs to be managed with good medical input to try and manage the eczema as best you can so it's not um, impacting on the nighttime sleep. In terms of stimulation, is there a difference between, say, a baby playing with their toys and then a baby playing on an iPad or, or screen time? What are your recommendations with <laughs> screen time? Yeah. I know we'll, we'll get into that in a lot more detail yeah. in terms of... Oh, look, I think it's really important, Matt, because more and more we're seeing screens on prams and in front of babies and it's it's a big no-no. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has come out with some guidelines um, around this and they certainly don't recommend screen time certainly under the age of one and probably not under the age of two. And certainly for the older, maybe, you know, 
under the age of two, if you're going to, it's got to be supervised with the parents. So it's interactive, educational, certainly not under the age of one. Mm-hmm. The big problem also with screens is not just the content, but it emits something called a blue light, which blocks the melatonin. And actually melatonin, you know, is is produced in babies from a few weeks of age. So if you're interfering with that brain's production of melatonin, you're potentially interfering with them setting up good sleep habits and good sleep cycles. And the popularity of screen technology right now is just so... Massive. Yeah. And I guess there haven't been any long-term studies on the long-term effects that could happen to infants. Yeah. And then certainly very few studies in really young babies. Most of the studies are in teenagers and and school-age children and looking at the impacts on sleep and their mental health, for example. Um, But certainly um, the best form of entertainment is you as a parent (laughs) and for your baby, (laughs) talking to them, singing to them, interacting with them or siblings. When they have siblings, they're another great form of entertainment, but um, staying away from screens, particularly under one. So Harriet... We were talking before about feeding overnight. How long do do children or babies need feeding overnight? Yeah, look, how long should we keep it going? Yeah, that, this is often a very um, personal preference for families. So, from a strictly nutritional point of view, from six months of age, babies can get enough of their requirements during the daytime that they don't have to feed overnight. But if a parent wants to keep feeding until twelve months, eighteen months, two years of age. That's totally up to the parent and that's absolutely fine. The big issues, uh, certainly if your baby is feeding, is not feeding them and leaving a bottle in the cot with them because there is sugar in formula milk as there is in breast milk and we know that that can lead to dental caries. So um, I've certainly seen babies who um, go to sleep on the breast, you know, after 12 months of age or go to sleep on the bottle after 12 months of age and they come to me with dental caries because of that. What's dental caries, sorry? Teeth cavities mm. because of the sugar in, in the breast milk and in the in the formulas. So I would certainly say it's a parent choice. But after six months, if parents come to me and say, I I don't, you know, I'm exhausted. I'm, I don't want to get up three times a night to feed my baby. Um, that's, that's fine and we can help them. And the sorts of things we do is look at how are you getting your baby to sleep at the start of the night. So if the baby is falling asleep on the bottle or the breast, that's a sleep association and we need to teach the baby to fall asleep without that. So the very first thing I'd say is give the last breastfeed or bottle feed outside the bedroom at the start of the night. Make sure there's about 20 minutes before finishing that feed and going to bed into the cot. And what they can do in that time is look at a book, you know, do some reading with their baby with the television off, lights down low in the living room, then take them into the bedroom and settle them with one of the methods we were talking about before, the um, checking method or the camping out method. Then when your baby wakes overnight, if they're used to having two or three feeds and you just stop them, they will be furious. So so rather than just stopping straight away, we would slowly cut down. Um, So I say to breastfeeding mums, time your breastfeeds and cut down by two minutes every couple of nights. And when you get to four minutes of breastfeeding, that's a snack. So stop. And the best way to stop is by putting your little finger inside your baby's mouth and taking them off the breast, giving them a cuddle, putting them back down into their cot. If they're bottle feeding, I say reduce by 20 mils every two nights. And again, once you get to 60 mils per feed, that's a snack. Time to stop that. A lot of parents will say, well, can I give them water instead? But that's just another, you know, different liquid. It's still a habit for the baby. So it's better just to stop those feeds once you get to 60 mils altogether. Sleep was presented by Harriet Hiscock and Emma Shabaris and produced by me, 
Matt Dwyer. Audio production done by Darcy Thompson and our executive producer is Jen Goggins. For more apps, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app and listen for free.